Well, good morning. I appreciate the faux love. Uh, as you heard, my name is uh, Adam Mackenzack, and I'm privileged to be able to come up here and share with you. Uh, I'm really appreciative of Derek giving me the opportunity to do this. Uh, the last couple of years that he's done, uh, been here, he's given me the opportunity to come uh, and to share. And usually it's when he's not here, uh, but I'm thankful that he's able to, to be here with, uh, with me today. And I actually try to make a point to do this every week, whether he's here or not, to thank him for giving me the opportunity. But today, uh, I was thinking about this last night, that I don't think it gets said enough from up here um, how much we appreciate what he does. Hey, don't go anywhere. Hey, come out here. Hey, wait. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I am not thanking Derek. I'm just kidding. Um, but no, on a serious note, uh, week after week after week after week, doing this, oh, note-taking, uh, doing this takes a lot uh, of effort, takes a lot of passion, and pouring your heart, which I know he does, uh, into each week uh, is just something that should never be taken for granted. So to steal uh, a Derekism as a, a tribe, I think it would be awesome if we could just say thanks for the week in and week out work that he does. <clears throat> I don't, I don't think that was faux love, man. All right. Um, as you heard him say, uh, next week we're, uh, we're kind of kicking off this new series called uh, Come Together. My job this week is to sort of be a trailer for that series, to, uh, to, to, to throw that hook out there, that bait, and get you to keep coming back uh, week after week after week. It's going to be an awesome series. Uh, it makes sense because we're on the eve of regrouping uh, with our connect groups and kind of kicking that off again. So we thought it would make perfect sense to sort of spend some time in this room together to talk about the value of that community, to talk about the value of having fellowship. And, and you know, the Greek word for fellowship is this Greek word koinonia, and it's this word that's thrown around a lot when talking about fellowship. Uh, but sometimes I think the word fellowship just throws us off a little bit because we think of, okay, a group of people coming together, maybe there's a covered dish involved, some drinks, we spend some time talking, and then we kind of leave and then leave it at that. This idea of koinonia really has this sense of coming together for a bigger purpose. It really has this sense of partnership. That it's more than just kind of sharing some laughs and sharing some food and then going on about our lives. But it's a way of connecting with one another so that we share life and do life together. And it's such a valuable thing that we buy into here at CCB. <clears throat> and as you're going to see today, we really feel that God buys into the community or the necessity of community that you and I share. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, if you got one of the house Bibles underneath your seat, uh, the passages as we go through today will show up on the screen along with a page number so that you can feel welcome to, uh, to come along with us. But this passage in Hebrews, while you're kind of turning there, let me just sort of back up a little bit and give you some history to sort of get your mind right with what we're talking about. But this letter, uh, written by an unknown author, we have no idea who the author of this letter was, uh, was writing, essentially, in the broadest sense, was writing to a group of people who were struggling. They were struggling in their faith. They were struggling in the face of persecution to maintain the faith that they have found in Jesus Christ. And it's really kind of orchestrated like a beautiful sermon. And everything up to this point where we're going to be looking at today, the author is really sort of driving home the message of who Jesus is and why he matters. And he does a lot of mixing with the language of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And Hebrews is beautiful at sort of bridging that gap uh, for us to understand today. I feel like sometimes a lot of people 
you know, kind of avoid Hebrews because of the language that it uses, and we don't necessarily understand exactly what's going on, but I promise you that if you stick with it and you work through it, maybe patiently, but spend the rest of your life working through it, you will be benefited greatly. Because the image of Jesus that we're going to see today is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And in this particular passage, this is where the shift of Hebrews really takes place. Everything up to this point has been teaching who Jesus is, what he came to do, why it's important. And then in verse 19 of chapter 10 really becomes this shift of, and this is why it matters. This is sort of like the, the so what. I told you everything about Jesus up to this point, and now I'm going to tell you what, the, what you're supposed to do with this message. So look down in chapter 10, verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for, we, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Verse 25 is really where this series is going to resonate greatly. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Again, verse 25, this idea of in, in continuing to meet together, not giving up this habit, is really where this series is going to resonate. But again, my job today is to sort of set the base level of what we're going to be talking about, to give you something to keep in the back of your mind as we go through this series, to always keep there as we talk about communities, we talk about the value of what happens when God's people come together around a common idea. And this message today, I hope, is one that can just stick with you as we continue through. Because at the very base level, what we're going to be talking about today is that before any social community can be successful, and specifically in the Christian context, before this right here can become successful, there has to be community with God. Bottom line. Before this can become successful, this has got to exist as well. And this is something we preach a lot here. Derek is very good about nailing this home, so some of this might sound familiar. But all throughout Scripture, this idea is proclaimed. The Ten Commandments, something that everyone is familiar with. You might not be able to list out each of the commandments, but you go out on the street and say Ten Commandments, you're going to be hard-pressed to find somebody who has no idea what you're talking about. But at a very basic level of reading through them, you might not notice, but there is a very specific order to which these commandments are listed. One through four has a great deal to do with my personal relationship with God. And then five through ten sort of moves into this horizontal relationship of me and other people. Primary, me and God. Secondary, me and others. But they're just as important. Both of them are equally as important. And this is illustrated by Jesus in the New Testament. It's approached by a teacher of the law. He says, tell me what the greatest commandment is, which is a daunting task because there's 600 plus of them. And to narrow that down all the way to one is not an easy thing. But Jesus apparently has no hesitation. He comes right back with, that's easy, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And you almost get the sense that the teacher of the law is satisfied, right? But Jesus continues to speak, and he says, but the second one is a lot like the first. I know you didn't ask for the first two commandments, but I'm going to give you the second greatest anyway because they're so closely connected that you can't have one without the other. 
got to have love your Lord your God first, but the second one, although it's secondary, is just as important, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Primary relationship is vertical. Secondary is horizontal. This is something that we preach a lot in this place, and this is a big point to catch because as a community moves forward in this world, specifically in the context of a Christian community, we've got to have at the center the same goal, the same heartbeat, the same passion, because if we don't, it crumbles. And we understand this in a modern sense. Think about it in the context of sports. As teams have a common goal, whatever it is, you just list the sport, whether it be football, basketball, soccer, whatever, the goal is the same. And there's an understanding, there's a strategy behind what each team is doing. And when one person decides to go off and kind of do things on their own, the team suffers, the image suffers. Do we have any uh, fans of the Tour de France? I know one. All right. I just recently got into that this past year. I'm the kind of guy, my wife can attest to this, I can pretty much get into any sport, just about any sport, as long as I understand it. As long as I understand not only the rules, but also the strategy behind it. Curling, give me a rule book, I can get into it, okay? That ridiculous Olympic, I don't know, well, I don't know what they're doing, but I can get into it if I understand it. I was determined to understand the Tour de France this year. I just thought, guy gets on a bike, rides a ridiculous amount of miles, first one across the line wins, right? Well, I thought it was that simple, but I'm sitting there watching the TV. Of course, it's over in Europe, so it's happening really early in the morning. So 6.30, I got my coffee. I'm watching people bike around France and having no idea what they're talking about because the commentators are assuming you know what's going on. So they're throwing words around. I had no idea what Peloton was. I thought, who is this guy, and why? He keeps getting talked about a lot. I didn't realize it was the massive group of bikers and throwing around all these different colored jerseys, and I have no idea what's going on, okay? So Derek and I meet kind of on a regular basis, and I would just drill him with question after question. Dude, can you explain this? Can you? And he's good, man. He can tell you anything you want to know about it. <clears throat> but one thing I didn't realize was how much of a team sport cycling is. I mean, you just get on a bike and ride. Is it that simple? And he just listed out, no way, man. He just told me every little thing about how much of a team sport it is. And over the days and the weeks that passed, man, I started to catch it. And there, if there's tension in these teams, man, it can fall apart. And it almost happened in one of the cases this year. But we understand it. We understand that teams have got to have a common interest. What about at work? How many times have you sat around a conference table for countless hours drinking coffee and eating pastries and donuts and bagels and spending hours talking about strategy or whatever it is you're going to accomplish. And then one guy kind of gets up from the table and decides, get this harebrained idea to go off and do his own thing. And then before you know it, everyone else is stuck picking up all the pieces of his mess. We understand it. In a work environment, we have a strategy. We have something that we have to work towards. On a more serious note, what about in families? What about when a husband and a wife come together in marriage, and they have different interests. They have different goals. Maybe with their mouth they express what their goals are, but in their hearts they have something completely different. They're thinking, I'm going to change this person. I'm going to change this about her. I'm going to change this about him. And when the interest is not the same, it runs out. It runs out. It can falter. It happens all the time. So this is so important to catch today because there has to be a central point of focus in whatever community we form. Otherwise, there's tension. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Turn all the way back to the beginning, literally, Genesis 1. I've always wanted to do this on the screen. Page 1. We're going through the whole thing. Genesis 1. 
Genesis 1 through 3 can sort of group it under the umbrella of the creation story, God's creation of the world. And it's a beautifully written piece of literature. If you've never sat down and sort of read it all the way through, I highly encourage you to do that. It's just beautifully constructed. But one thing that we're going to sort of hit on today that I want you to catch is that in Hebrew writing, they have a lot of, they, they write differently than we do. And the one thing I want you to pick up on today that's important is their use of repetition. Okay? If there's a point that they want to emphasize, they say it a lot. Okay? They hit it over and over and over again. They don't want you to miss it. They don't want you to have to read between the lines because this is such an important part that you've got to grasp it. So I'm going to say it over and over and over and over and over again, almost to the point where it's frustrating. Okay? And a lot of the times, it's not as obvious. Okay? But this is not one of those cases. If you were just to sit down and read the first chapter of Genesis, you would pick up on it almost immediately. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. Just constantly, constantly. God speaks, creation obeys. God speaks, creation obeys. God, I mean, that's a sermon in and of itself. But this repetition over and over and over again. But a part of it, we see this evaluation from God. At the end of each day, as he created, whatever it was he created that day, there's this evaluation. And it was good. It was good. It was good. And it was good. And it was good. We see it over and over and over again. Now, the Hebrew word here for good is the word tob. And if you're taking notes, it's easy. T-O-B. Tob. Okay? And it's not good as in the opposite of bad. Okay? So get that out of your mind. What Tob is essentially saying is that something is complete. Something is the way that it's supposed to be. So at the end of each day, when God finished creating whatever it was that he was creating, and he gave the evaluation, and it was Tob, it was done. It was complete. It was the exact way that it was meant to be. Okay? And we see this constantly, day after day after day. Now, fast forward to chapter 2. This is a little bit more of a detailed description of the creation of man, of Adam and Eve. Chapter 2, look down in verse 7. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is very intimate language of God forming man from the, his creation and then breathing life into him. It's very intimate. And this would have jumped off the page of this culture because they did not view the gods as being intimate. Mankind was just a byproduct. Gods didn't care about us, but this God does. There's intimacy. There's connection. There's community between God and the man. Now, skip over to verse 18, and this is where we're getting to. After Adam became a living being, God placed him in the garden gave him responsibilities, gave him a task, gave him restrictions, telling him not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in verse 18, God makes this assessment. He says that it is not good. It's not good. Now, if you were just to read this from Genesis 1-1 and got to this point, this should jump off the page to you. Because this is the first time that God assesses his creation and something is not good. Something is not right. Remember, it's not the opposite of bad. God hasn't messed up. 
It's not complete. Something here is not the way that it was meant to be. He says it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. It's not complete for the man to be alone. Now, what have we got so far? Let's look at this. Light, good. Sea, good. Land, good. Trees, good. Vegetation, good. Sun, good. You see the point? But I'm not done. Moon, good. Stars, good. Birds, good. Fish, good. Lions, tigers, bears, all good. All of it. Tobe, good. Isolation, not good. Alone, not good. Something is missing. And in order to make it good, in order for it to get that qualification of good, God puts the man in community, and he created Eve. Now, before Eve, God and Adam had community. And then after Eve, Adam and Eve had community, but they also had community with God. And God was at the center of their community. And on that day, at the end of it all, the assessment that was given was very good. Very good. That jumps off the page. Good, 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 good. Stuff, good. Community, very good. And there's people that will say that, man, you can see the beauty of God all throughout his creation. And you can. Walk outside, you get to experience the majesty of God. But that only got good. This right here got very good. Very good. That kind of foreshadows the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew when he said that when two or three gather together in my name, I'm there with them. Jesus isn't trying to make a point that if somehow you're by yourself and it's just you and God that he's somehow absent from the picture. That's not his point. The point that he's trying to make is that there's something very divine about community. There's something very divine about when people gather together around this idea of God and who he is. It's a very beautiful thing. It's very, very good. Now, it would have been great if the story would have ended there in the garden, but we know that it doesn't. And we don't really have an understanding of the timeline of how all this took place, but at some point, Adam and Eve lost their focus. Their life no longer became centered around God. And at some point, it became focused inward. It became focused on God. Their eyes are on themselves. Their eyes were removed from God and put on their own lives. And they selfishly took from the tree that they were told not to because the serpent said, you will become like God. And that sounded like a good deal. And from that moment on, there was tension in the relationship. Not only between Adam and Eve, there was tension there. Their eyes were open. They could see that they were naked. There was problems. But there was also tension between mankind and God. And it's never been the same since. And in the scriptures that follow, you can read page after page after page of this point. The immediate next story deals with Cain and Abel, two brothers who were not able to get along and one killed the other. Esau and Jacob, another set of brothers. Joseph and his brothers. I mean, hello, that is the definition of tension. Saul and David, 
King Saul pursuing after David, who was told, Saul was told was going to be the next king of Israel. And in fact, you could just say the entire nation of Israel is a definition of tense relationships. And it all comes from the point that in some way in their life, the attention has been put inward instead of on God. And when it's put inward, there's no uh, common ground. Your inward is not mine, and mine is not yours. It's all different. There's no center peace. And so in Hebrews, if you want to flip back, it makes absolute perfect sense that the author would draw our attention to Jesus. Because after the creation story and after sin entered the world, the story of mankind continues. And our eyes have now been opened. And all the places that we look, we see tension in all kinds of relationship because the focus has been removed from him who the psalmist David calls my rock and my fortress and has now been placed on me whose days can best be described as shifting sands or the flowers of the field whose beauty is here one day and gone the next. The attention, the focus, that's what's got to change. And that's the primary thing that we're talking about. Before we even hit on what goes on in community, what are, and what reason are we gathering? That's the most important thing. So in Hebrews 10, starting back up in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, not arrogance, confidence, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from any guilty, a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let me back up a little bit and explain some of the imagery here. The author is drawing our attention to the temple and the ways that sacrifices were performed. The most holy place or the holy of holies was the, the innermost room inside the temple. It was a room that was designed only for one man to enter one day a year, and that man was the high priest. And on this day, known as the Day of Atonement, this high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of all the people of Israel. Now, before he was able to enter, he had to go through a pretty strenuous list of qualifications. He, first of all, had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, because even though he was the high priest and, and occupied that position, he himself still fell short. So he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And then he had to literally cleanse himself from head to toe and wear specific garments, even all the way down to his underwear, before he was able to walk into the Holy of Holies. Because if he did anything wrong, God said that he would have surely died. Now, it's not that God's mean. It's not that he, you know, struck him dead because he forgot to wash his hair in any sense. But the essence here is that God, being so perfect, cannot be approached with any blemish. It has to be perfect because we are sinners in the presence of a holy God. And so you got to imagine this high priest probably checking, double checking, and triple checking this list of making sure that I have done everything that I'm supposed to do because I know 100% sure that if I go in there and have missed anything, I'm done. I'm done. There had to be a lot of fear inside that man before he entered. But in this passage, the author of Hebrews says that we have confidence not arrogance, but confidence to enter this holy place, this holy of holies, because of the blood of Jesus. And then down in verse 21, he is called the great priest. In chapter 4 of the same book of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as the great high priest. 
And I'm going to teach you a little Greek. You ready? It's easy. You'll remember it. People will think you're brilliant. Great high priest. This Greek word for great is the Greek word mega. He's the mega high priest. Don't you feel smarter? Come here, come on. You just learned Greek. Mega high priest. There's priest. There's high priest. Well, that was it. This position of great high priest was only reserved for Jesus. No one else could fill that shoe. No one else could fill that responsibility. Jesus did not have to offer a sacrifice for himself because he was perfect. And his sacrifice was not offered on an annual basis, but once and for all. And from then on out, Jesus now serves as the mediator between us sinners and a holy God. And we have confidence, not arrogance because of anything that I've done, but confidence because I have confidence in who Jesus is that I can approach God whenever and and, in whatever context if I need to. And I have sure confidence in the full assurance of faith that Jesus will fulfill the role that I need him to. It's amazing that out of everything in this world that divides us, you fill in the blank. Jesus' death ensures that there is one thing, one thing at least, that you and I can find common ground on. That no matter who you are, where you've been, or what you have done, Jesus bridges any gap that we can create between ourselves and God and between ourselves and each other. It's the common ground that we can all rely on. And it doesn't matter where you've been or where you come from. Let me illustrate this last point. Turn to John chapter 4. You don't need to look any farther than this story. Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Judea to Galilee. And if you were to look at a map, you would see that there was this area that was located immediately in between them known as Samaria. Now, without going into a whole lot of discussion, all you got to know is that Jews and Samaritans don't like each other. They don't get along at all. In fact, if a journey from a, for a Jew was to be made from Judea to Galilee or vice versa, sometimes they would add days or even weeks to their trip to avoid Samaria. Walk all the way around it. They didn't want to touch the same ground. Okay, that's how much they, they couldn't stand one another. And so Jesus, in chapter 4, takes his disciples, because he's Jesus, straight through Samaria. He had to do it, right? This is what the author John says in verse 4, chapter 4. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Thanks, Jesus. Disciples are really uncomfortable with this. But they come to this well known as Jacob's well. And in verse 7, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Okay? First point of tension. We have Jesus, a Jew, and a Samaritan woman. Racially, there's tension here. They're within eyesight of one another. Okay? Jewish man, Samaritan woman. So we already have tension racially. The next thing, verse 7, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Jesus initiates conversation. You could probably imagine that this woman was thinking, okay, there's a Jewish man at the well. I'll just go get my water, do my thing, and I'm out of here. But Jesus initiates conversation. He didn't want it just to, to slip by with a casual uh, a connection. He wanted to make and engage in conversation. Second problem, okay? He's a man speaking with a woman. Culturally, racially, we have problems. And now we have a man speaking to a woman. The conversation continues. 
And Jesus asks for water, and this woman doesn't even say no. Her response is, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why, why are you talking to me? How can, you, how can you do this? Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and we, he would have given you living water. And the conversation continues, and she asks, what is this living water? Everyone who drinks this water, Jesus says in verse 13, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst Excuse me. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman responds, Sir, give me this water so that I can come, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And in perfect Jesus fashion, he completely avoids what she says and says, Go call your husband and come back. And you have to know that at that moment, the tension in this woman's life just doubled. I'm already a Samaritan speaking to a Jew. I'm a woman speaking to a man, and now he wants to know where my husband is. How do I approach this? I have no husband, right? Jesus says, you're right. (laughs) You're right in your own assessment. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. You've got to imagine the tension. Now there's moral tension. We have a rabbi in the presence of a woman who's a sinner, living in sin, and apparently doesn't care. I've had five, and the man I'm living with is now, is not my husband. Culturally, there's tension. We have a Jew and a Samaritan. Socially, there's tension. We have a man and a woman. And now morally, we have tension because there's a rabbi and a sinner. And they're just having this casual conversation. And as the conversation continues, something changed in this woman to the point that her testimony, if you look over in verse 39, her testimony, many of the Samaritans from that town believed because of her testimony. Jesus crossed every gap that threatened the connection between them and this woman. He crossed the racial gap, he crossed the culture gap, and he crossed the moral gap. It didn't matter. And if he did it for her, I promise he'll do it for you. In a world that might leave you feeling like an outcast in any sense of the word, I encourage you to draw near to God, lean on the cross of Jesus, and when you do, you'll look around and you'll find people who want to come around you, love you, and you can find that place right here. To close, we're going to move into our time of communion. And in the context of what we're talking about, this is, seems the, the, the best way to do this. Um, everything that I'm about to say, if you're a guest with us, again, we're so glad you're here. And if any of this makes you uncomfortable, you do not have to participate. Do not feel pressured. What I want uh, to happen is I want each row to sort of form up however you want. You can just kind of scooch in if there's just two or three of you. Or if you want to stand and find a place, that's great. But I want there to be prayer amongst each row. And this is the essence of what we're doing. As we approach the tables, there's two in the front and two in the back. As we approach this time of remembering the sacrifice that Jesus paid on our behalf, the blood that he shed so that you and I can have something that we can all come around and say, I need that. I need that. No matter what's going on in my life, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter if you've had a horrible day, a horrible week, a horrible year, a horrible life, it doesn't matter because at this moment, we are one. At this moment, 
All barriers are down. All lines are crossed. It doesn't matter. There's nothing that separates you from me and me from you. We all are connected under the blood of Jesus. There's no one that's able to stand above the cross of Christ and say, I don't need that. It doesn't exist. And Jesus' death ensured that there was something that you and I could center our life on, something that was sure, something that was solid, something that was a rock, and that if that became the center of our community, there's no end to what we could do. So I'm going to ask that you just, you can just ask one person in, in each, you know, not everyone has to pray. Each one person in each row can come together. And when you're done, I want you to move together to one of the tables, and I want you to take together. And at some point during this, I encourage you to kind of look around and watch what happens, because it is a beautiful movement of God's people, all of us, moving to the feet of the cross and just proclaiming with our actions that we understand this is what we need. So I, give, I encourage you to take this time to do that. Uh, there's offering at the tables as well if you've come prepared to give. Uh, and when you're finished, uh, we're going to have some more singing, and then you'll be dismissed.